1: Hello and welcome back to the Grief Gang podcast with me, your host Amber Jeffrey. The message behind the Grief Gang is to normalize the topic of conversation that is grief. People living with grief can often feel ashamed, isolated, and alone. This podcast was created to break those taboos after I myself experienced all of those feelings after the loss of my mum in 2016. I decided enough was enough and we need to talk about this. You'll hear on this podcast an array of stories and experiences, some being my own and some being fantastic guest episodes and their incredible stories. You'll laugh, you'll cry, but I hope above all, I hope you'll learn. I hope you'll learn that you are not alone in your grief journey, that you have a voice and it should be heard, that you and your grief matter. So without further ado, I'll let you enjoy the episode. Happy listening. Hello Grief Gang and welcome back to this week's episode of the show. It is a fantastic guest episode and I'm beyond excited to share it with you. It absolutely had me speechless for hours after the recording, so that's saying something. So I'm delighted to announce that I am being joined in this episode by Dr Catherine Mannix. Now if you don't know who she is, um, you should really get to know because she is just amazing and this conversation will stick with me for a very long time. Catherine has dedicated her career over 30 years to medicine and palliative care and upon attaining all of that knowledge and experience um, she has gone on to written a book that completely changed my life and I'm very, very grateful to her for writing this book. And it's called With the End in Mind. She's also gone on to written her most recent book called Listen. Um, and but with the End in Mind is a book that was referred to me as I embarked on my death doula. Journey and still am. Um and so I read it and I knew I just had to have her as a guest. So before we get into this episode, I'm gonna read you an extract of the book. It's in her last words that will kind of set us up for this next I'm gonna say an hour, because it's probably gonna be an hour um episode. In sharing the stories of so many ordinary people as they reach their final days, I hope that I have shown that in the end, none of us is ordinary, that each unique individual is extraordinary in their own way. As we approach the end of our lives, we experience a shift in perspective that allows us to focus on the most important things in our own domain. This shift is both poignant and freeing, as these stories illustrate. Living is precious and is perhaps best appreciated when we live with the end in mind. It's time to talk about dying. Happy listening. I am joined by none other than Dr. Catherine Mannix. Catherine, thank you so, so much for being here today. How are you?
0: I'm fine.
1: Thank you very much. And thanks for
0: inviting me.
1: Uh, The pleasure is all mine. Um, And we're going to go into so much more. And even more, kind of how, I mean, you've always been on my radar. How could you not be? How could anybody be in the grief and death and dying bereavement space and not know about Catherine Mannix? And if you don't, you've been under a rock. (laughs) You've been under a rock. (laughs) You've been under a rock for a long time. But we're going to go into everything and all the work that you've done. But Catherine, I just want if you could spend just a couple of minutes just introducing yourself um, and your fantastic career to the lovely listeners.
0: Oh, I'll try. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for listening to us. So um, I'm Catherine. I'm a doctor. And when I first qualified, I thought I wanted to be a cancer doctor. So when I was a junior doing all those training jobs, I chose lots of Wards and units where people with really aggressive cancers were being treated, and that was a long time ago because I qualified in 1982. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have the sort of treatments then that we have now, and people did not survive nearly so long. We there were lots of things we cure now that we couldn't cure then. So eventually, I started um, passing enough exams to go and work in the big regional cancer centre, and that's when I discovered that actually. I wasn't really so interested in finding the cure for cancer. That Mm. was interesting. But what was really interesting was those people who knew they were not going to get cured and for whom time was really precious and sorting out their symptoms and helping them to feel less afraid Mm -hmm. and helping them to not have to be in the hospital. Mm. That just was way more interesting. So around about the time that I was... Falling out of love with an academic career in cancer medicine. There was a hospice built in the city where I was working, literally about 15 minutes walk away from my house. Mm. So I wrote to them and said, Look, I'm really interested in this stuff about people whose time is precious and symptoms are difficult and all of that. And I've worked around this city now for, it must have been th- four years so i 've worked in lots of the different units that you 'll need to liaise with for the care of your patients. Have you got a job, and they made me a job I mean they really they knitted me a job because wow. they knew they needed a medical director, so they appointed a proper trained, experienced doctor from another hospice in the mm. south of England, so he was my first boss. Mm. But poor him, he was appointed by the panel in the morning. And then the same panel interviewed me in the afternoon and and made this job for me. And he didn't get any choice at all. (laughs) It was very lucky that we got on wonderfully well. So I went to work in a hospice in a time when we didn't have, you know, it's called palliative care now. And the medical discipline is called palliative medicine. Well, in those days, it was called working in a hospice. And uh, all those fancy titles only came Mm. along later. So I worked in what became palliative care for thirty years as a trainee, and then later as a consultant. And I loved working in the different hospices that I worked in. I loved meeting people at home. Mm-hmm. It's great when you go and really see people in their space mm-hmm. with their things around them and yeah. their beloved people around them and their pets, and you know that it's really lovely. Mm-hmm. But for the last 10 years, mainly I worked in a very big, very busy teaching hospital, uh, working in a palliative care team that gradually got bigger as people realised what palliative care had to offer. So we started off with, I think, um, three half days a week of the doctor. That was me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there were two nurses. And gradually we built that up and added nurses and physios and OTs and had access to a clinical psychologist mm. and you know all, all the different disciplines that you would need and I loved it I loved it to the very very last day
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I guess it's really important to say at the beginning when you're talking about palliative care that it's not about dying mm-hmm. even though I know we are going to talk about dying <laughs> this afternoon that palliative care is about sorting out the symptoms so that people can live well Mm. and obviously for most illnesses the best way to get rid of the symptoms is to cure the illness Mm. so palliative care tends to come in when it's hard to cure the illness or it's no longer possible Mm -hmm. to cure the illness but that doesn't mean the person's dying it means they're living with an illness that's going to cause them problems and we're there to try and kind of iron out the problems a little Mm. bit But it does, of course, mean that we do meet a lot of people towards the very end of their lives as well. But that's a coincidence. It's not what palliative care is for so Mm -hmm. if you or somebody you love gets referred to a palliative care team or to a hospice lovely listeners say hooray that's fantastic because what will happen is the symptom burden will be reduced the quality of life will be increased and actually there is some research that even suggests that having a better quality of life extends life expectancy as well. Yeah. So demand palliative care yeah. as early as you can possibly
1: get it. <laughs> I can imagine Catherine that yeah go, when you eventually went into palliative care and going in putting that doctor to hat on. Did you notice a difference in how how to kindly say you're not the most welcomed doctor in the room or the per- kind of like you kind of saying there that some people are a bit oh, when you say the p word yeah, they go oh, because I I literally just experienced it very recently last year, and when palliative care was brought up, it was oh, that's it, and that's and it was brought in months before my my loved one died, and um, but as soon as it was brought in the room, they thought that she's she's going now, she's going to die now, and it, I was, I really had to get through to my family of that it's it's they're not here to kill her. They're not here to kill her. I promise you. Yes. <laughs> and it, but it almost, I can imagine, I, I think, I can only imagine, yeah, from a doctor's perspective thinking, oh, people think I'm coming here to to speed it up. And it's not. Yeah. should be. I
0: should be dressed like the Grim Reaper, <laughs> shouldn't I? Black coat for the wardrobe. The, the hook. <laughs> Do you know, I think, I think part of that is um, the way we get introduced by other doctors to patients and their families uh, if you have a, a dear relative who's got a heart problem their gp or the doctor who's looking after them in the hospital who's realized this heart problem is a bit more complicated than their team usually manages will say we need to get a specialist to look at this heart problem with us and i'm going to ask doctor so-and-so to come and see you and give us all some advice mm-hmm. yeah that's what happens yeah. Yeah. the doctor tells you that they're going to ask The specialists to come and help Mm -hmm. what happens in palliative care is the doctor comes in and goes "Mm, well i don't know you know it's a bit awkward but Mm. would you mind terribly if we asked the palliative care team as though in some way the palliative care team and i really honestly think that if doctors talked about introducing palliative care in exactly the same way that they introduced any other specialist Mm -hmm. you know this pain is a real challenge to us we're doing everything we know and we need our specialist colleagues to come along this itch is driving you mad itch Mm -hmm. is a terrible symptom when people get it it's rare Mm -hmm. but it's so serious it drives people Mm -hmm. to suicide yeah you know we need specialists to do this or i can see that this person is becoming increasingly despondent and depressed and low and we need specialists who understand mood change Mm -hmm. when people have really severe physical illnesses it's not the same as ordinary psychiatry it's liaison work we need specialists who can do that and it might be that it's you know psychiatrists again there's a kind of permission asking conversation yeah. do you mind mm-hmm. no you you need this specialist yeah. help you're entitled to this specialist help mm-hmm. and i'm really glad i'm going to get this specialist help for you and i think we need to talk the same way about palliative care so every now and again the conversation starts should we change its name
1: mm. yeah
0: or should we call it supportive care mm. But what will happen is in four years' time, they're going to say, oh, do you mind if we get the supportive care team? Oh, not the supportive care team. Yeah. It's about attitudes to the discipline itself. It's yeah. not about the name.
1: How old were you? So when you embarked in, we you dipped your toes in, into into end-of-life care?
0: Um, well, I'd been looking after in, people who were yeah. sick enough to die since,
1: since I was the a dawn. Medical yeah. student. yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: So um, I saw the first dead person I saw was when I was a first year medical student. So I would have been 18. Mm. Um, I can't remember the first time I was with somebody who was dying. But Mm. I can remember one of the first times. It was my very first ward. So I'd have been 20 Mm. by then. And what I realized then was that it wasn't doctors who were at the bedside of dying people. Mm. It was nurses. And yeah. I got to know this particular patient really well. And yet there wasn't a role for the doctors or the medical students. And the mm. nurses were fantastic because they brought me in with them. Mm. And you know they gave me little jobs helping yeah. this person to eat or making sure his water jug was filled up
1: mm.
0: or helping to turn him in bed and things like that because they knew that he and I had got on very, yeah. very well. And what they did was they showed me something much more important, it's turned out in the end, mm-hmm. than knowledge. Because medical school is largely about knowledge. Yeah. They taught me how to be, how to be beside somebody when there is nothing that you can do to make it better.
1: Because
0: yeah. medical school is teaching you to save lives. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a lot about what's done when the life can't be saved. And your doula training is very much that as well, isn't it? It's how to be a companion, Mm -hmm. how to be alongside so the space is owned by the person whose space it is, Mm -hmm. and that isn't us. We have to somehow do that even in hospital, Mm -hmm. where actually the hospital does own the space. We have to give the space to the person and the family and let them take ownership of it and create the atmosphere they want there. Yeah and we're there as bit part players it's not about us Mm. and that I think sometimes is a hard lesson yeah for healthcare professionals I was just
1: about to ask yeah did you Mm. quite struggle with that in the point of when it's just it's the stillness isn't it of when you know your role as the doctor as you just said you're taught to save lives and when the nurses are bringing you in and being you know that we're not we're not we're not doing that anymore we are just making them comfortable and all those tasks that you just said did you quite struggle did your kind of natural instinct be to well oh, but what if i did that you know the first time i saw a dead
0: person i couldn't believe he was quite dead yeah. and i was a little bit worried that if we just tried a little bit harder we'd wake him up yeah 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 um that was in the back of an ambulance yeah. so he'd he'd had a uh, a cardiac arrest on his on his way to the hospital and they hadn't been able to resuscitate him Mm. but what was lovely when I saw those nurses at those bedsides was it was almost like the missing piece of the jigsaw Mm. okay yeah Uh, this is nothing to do with my stethoscope and Mm -mm. blood pressure cuff and all that stuff that's in my head about what to do Mm. she's sitting she's touching his hand she's mopping his forehead yeah She's checking underneath the blankets what temperature his knees are. Is he warm enough? Does Mm. he need an extra blanket? Okay, I can copy this. Yeah. I can learn from this. This is about how to be with people, Mm -hmm. not how to do things to people. Yeah. And when I arrived at the hospice after four years in hospital medicine, and working in the cancer centre, two things straight away stood out for me. The first was this was a place where doctors needed to know how to be, not just what to do. Mm-hmm. And the other was that complete sense of teamwork that when anything happened, we looked to each other to help to make the difference for the patient and the family. But when we were struggling, we looked to each other to be each other's support. And I just felt like I'd found my people.
1: I'm, I'm like a lazy bookworm, right? <laughs> people say, oh, do you read? I go, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, my book pile says different. But with your book, Catherine, I, I really did find myself not wanting to put it down. And it was a strange feeling of not wanting to put it down though I'm blubbering through tears yeah. And almost going I should probably put this down And not in a sense of this isn't good for me Because I, I could feel it just It making me think Just making me think And I want to speak about one particular person Specifically And that's Holly
0: Right Yeah
1: Oh my goodness. Yeah. And did that just take you right back? It absolutely does. Absolutely. Gave me, uh, I gave it yes. a bit of goosebumps there, just because yeah. I'm imagining when I first read it about Holly. Mm. And to summarise your book, it's a numerous handful of essays, isn't it, of your, your career and people you've met and lessons that they've taught you, and um, your teachers, let's say. Um, and so Holly specifically, probably get my kindle in a minute to get some quotes from it if not but could you explain to the listeners not too much because they should go and buy the book and read it themselves <laughs> but your experience with holly and her girls because it just yeah
0: yeah yeah with pleasure
1: gosh holly. <laughs>
0: so i hadn't been working in a hospice very long And I had my first weekend where I was going to be the doctor on call on my own. And my boss was only going to come in if I called him. Mm -hmm. And I had a phone call from a GP to say he was looking after a young woman at home who had uh, cancer of her cervix. And it had got so big now that her pelvis was full of cancer and it was Mm -hmm. blocking her kidneys And her kidneys were slowing down and not working. And there wasn't really a way of dealing with that. Because if she went on to dialysis, it would have dealt with the kidneys, but the cancer would still have been growing. Mm -hmm. So she was living with and dying from this big cancer in her pelvis. And the palliative care team knew her. And so some of the um, problems she'd been having was in the at the back of our pelvis are the nerves that come down to our legs Mm -hmm. and they've been being pressed on so the palliative care team been working very very carefully Mm -hmm. to get the right balance of painkillers so that holly was comfortable enough to be able to sit down and walk around because she had two teenage daughters and she she needed to be able to run her home Mm -hmm. but the real problem she'd had had been nausea Um, When people's kidneys are failing, nausea is quite a common problem. And so she'd been started on a particular drug that really helps with that type of nausea. And it had really helped her. Mm. Nausea had gone away completely. But something strange had happened to Holly. And Mm. the GP wasn't sure what was going on. But he knew that she was not sleeping because she was too awake and alert to want to sleep. She was talking very fast. She was fidgeting all the time. She couldn't find a resting place. Her body couldn't rest and her mind couldn't rest. And he'd never seen anything like it before. And as he was describing it down the phone, I thought, I think I know what this probably is. And Mm. that was because for me, it was lucky that I'd worked in the cancer center, Mm. and a lot of chemotherapy drugs make people very nauseated. And before we had the good drugs that we have now, there was a particular drug we used to use in a very high dose, and it made people wide awake, agitated, unable to settle. So I thought,
1: I know this is
0: going to be the anti sickness drug Mm -hmm. that's done what it needed to do she doesn't feel sick anymore she's not sitting on a chair on the landing outside the toilet getting up to vomit every Mm -hmm. few minutes which is how she had been what a horrible way to live but instead she's just got this drivenness and in fact it drives people to exhaustion yeah so i said to the gp would it be okay if i went and visited her he said oh yeah please do so i drove out saturday morning to visit her in her flat which was a few floors up in a not a very big block but a Mm. block that was too small to have a lift yeah and as I'm going up the stairs I can hear all this rock music Mm. um and when I get to the house that I'm you know the door that I knock on and uh, an older lady opened the door the music was coming out of Mm. that house and she had these mixtapes old cassette tapes and this was her mum and her mum said oh, you need to come and sort her out. She's been like this all night.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she's there, this tiny little woman, because the cancer was causing her now to be a little bit wasted. Yeah, um, She got a kind of yellowy tinge to her skin from a kidney failure. Mm-hmm. And she had her hair all pulled back in a very high ponytail, a very long ponytail. Mm-hmm. And she's dancing and she's throwing her head around and her ponytail's thrashing. Mm-hmm. And she's singing along and she had, she liked the same music I liked, so I could sing along too. Yeah. So that's quite good. Yeah, you were like, get in. Yes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, right, okay, let's let's have a little think about this, listen to her telling the story, examined her, and she had all of the other hallmarks that people have of yeah. this particular problem. And I didn't want to stop the anti-sickness treatment because I didn't want to then to just go back to feeling just wretched Mm. but there is an antidote that you can give Mm -hmm. which doesn't stop the drug working in the bit of your brain that feels nausea but it stops it working in the bit of your brain that makes you feel agitated and want to keep on moving Mm. even if the movement is dancing Mm -hmm. but to do that I was going to have to go back to the hospice Mm -hmm. and get this drug And that was going to be quite a drive away. And because obviously I was a new doctor and they didn't know anything about me, they hadn't allowed me to just take a little supply of drugs that I might need out with me. So I'm thinking, what am I going to do? She's fit to burst. She's so agitated. She's just got so much going on. We need to use the energy, really. How could we get her out? So her family borrowed a wheelchair from the lady downstairs and the, the, the lady's two biker sons came and they just carried her in the wheelchair <laughs> down the stairs and you know, this is before the days of health and
1: safety. Yeah. But if we'd
0: had health and safety, I'd have just been thinking, oh, God, I'm going to end up in court for letting this
1: happen. <laughs> oh, you're watching a keen eye like, don't you? Drop her.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So off they went. They went to the local shopping centre. A mum called her sister to come over. No mobile phones, of course. You're know, mm. On the lap. I called her sister and they went off. And I went back to the hospice and I phoned my boss and said, look, I've been called out and this is what's going on. And I think it's this thing, it's, um, a, the technical name for it is akathisia, mm-hmm. which is Greek for without a chair, literally unable to sit.
1: Wow mind yeah.
0: unable to sit so I've sent her off and she's in this wheelchair and she's got the cassette <laughs> player going she's off to the shops <laughs> and um they're saying her, so I think it's this and I think what I need to do is go back and give her this particular antidote and he said oh it sounds like you've got it all under control and of course I'm just feeling completely overwhelmed yeah, And they uh... said would you like me to come with you oh yes please so so he came um And we rendezvoused. I told him the address. We rendezvoused at the flat, and I now had the antidote. Um, And when we stopped the cars, there's a street party going on at pavement level at the block at this block of flats. And it's the lady who owns the wheelchair, the two biker sons, (laughs) patient in the wheelchair still dancing. Her sister, her mum, and I explained that you know I brought my boss, and we were going to need to give her an injection, and we'd probably you know, need to do that in her house because yeah. we probably need to move her clothes a bit to do yeah. that. You don't want to do that on the street. No. So right, the guys pick up the wheelchair and the back up the stairs. And my boss is saying to me, did you know that was going to happen? Yeah. You're like, Shh, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> so we, he, he had a look at her. He confirmed my diagnosis because that's why you have a trainer, isn't it? Yes. To make sure that you're not barking up the wrong train. <laughs> um, and then we Gave her the injection. And by now it was probably, oh I don't know, four o'clock on a winter's afternoon.
1: Mm.
0: Sun starting to set. Um, and she's dancing around the flat. And then gradually she's dancing mm. less. And then she sat on a chair for a while. She was just fidgeting her feet, fidgeting her hands, nodding her head a bit. Mm. And then she sat on the sofa for a while. And then she lay down on the sofa for a while. And then she said, I want to go to bed. Mm. And by now, the sun has set. Nobody's turned a light on. Mm. And so there's the orange street lamp coming through the window, illuminating Mm -hmm. all of this. And we realize we're not going to be able to get her up the stairs. She's got a kind of two level flat. Mm. So her mum brought downstairs um, a mattress that the daughters used when they were having friends for a sleepover. And we made a bed on the floor and she lay down on it. And my boss, who, oh, what what a fantastic, brilliant doctor, is saying to her mum, can you see how she's changing? Yeah. And we're starting to realise that without that kind of artificial energy that was caused by the side effect of the drug, she's got no energy left. She is absolutely exhausted. Mm -hmm. And she's really, really close to the end of her life. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Where are her daughters? Yeah. So one of them's out with her friends and the other one's out for a sleepover. And my boss suggested that maybe the daughters should come back. Mm -hmm. So again, phone on the landline to find them. And they came home and she was getting stiller and stiller. And the girls came home and we explained that, you know, mum's had a lovely day, but she's absolutely exhausted now Mm. and she's falling asleep and actually, it might be that what's left of her life now is really, really short. Yeah. And it's really important that you're here and she can see you. And they snuggled up on the, on the bed beside her, on the floor, on mm-hmm. this mattress. And she was stroking their hair and kissing them and telling them how much she loved them. As she gradually became unconscious, which is the normal way people die. But they don't usually do it like in front of your very eye eyes yeah. over a couple of hours it's yeah. normally a much longer process than that and we just sat on the sofa and the girls lay on the mattress with their mum and Nana was sitting in the chair and yeah. my boss was saying can you see how she's changing can you see how comfortable she is mm. can you see how much she's settled since she knows you're in the room are there things that you want to say to her so they're telling her how much they love her and they're crying, yeah. and I'm crying, and yeah. Nana's crying, and my boss is probably crying <laughs> as well. Yeah. And gradually her breathing just got slower and slower, and he pointed out to them the gaps there were. And then there was a very long gap that turned out to be her last breath because there just wasn't another breath, which again yeah. is the gentle, ordinary way that people die when they haven't mm-hmm. got horrible symptoms making yeah. them feel awful. And we sat with them for a little while after she died. And then we explained, you know, they had to get their GP to come and give mm-hmm. the certificate and, and, and say officially that yeah. she died and phone a funeral director. And again, saying to me, you know, there's no hurry to do that. You yeah. can lie here all night with her yeah. if you want to. You can do her hair, you can put on her makeup, uh, the district nurses can come round. and help you to wash her no need for that says nanny I know how to do that so Mm -hmm. we left them to care for her as they would know best Mm. and that was my first weekend on call for a hospice and probably one of the most memorable experiences in my whole medical career
1: doulas they just oh I'm really really excited to complete my my training with it. Um and it it does sound uh, for when I say that to people they just think, how oh, what you're so excited to go and see someone die. I say no, it's so much bigger than that. Like you don't and that's why I just think, yeah, you're not my person, bye. <laughs> you're not for me, babe." Maybe though, you need to have been there. Yeah.
0: Just like nothing really prepares anybody for how to feel when they're in a room and a baby is born yeah nothing prepares you for that and it doesn't matter whether you're the mother the birth attendant Mm. the father Mm. the medical student Mm. it is utterly mind-blowing that there is a whole new person here and yes there's been a lot of pushing and swearing and grunting and way more pain than there is on a deathbed actually Mm. a birthbed yeah um but it is just a transformational experience mm. and being with somebody as they die mm. is an utterly transformational experience. Yeah. That, that step from alive to not alive anymore, all that love that that person is and has and has invested in them. I've had so many families say to me, well, what happens to all the love then? Where's, where's all the mm. love gone And actually, so many people have asked me that. I realize it's a thing. Wow. And actually, the love hasn't gone, has it? It's inside us. And grieving is us looking for the place to put it because the person we want to give it to isn't there anymore. Yeah. But it's similarly transformational. So all that crying that you did through the book, and I did quite mm. a lot of crying as I was writing. <laughs>
1: I, can as imagine, well. I can imagine. Um,
0: I had quite a lot of feedback on social media about those tears. But it's really mm. interesting how much people say these are good tears. Absolutely. This is necessary emotion. Mm-hmm. This is about understanding. Yeah. And it's about transformational Absolutely. experience in some way.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I didn't for one second and through my tears think this is bad for me. I shouldn't read this. I thought I need, I need to keep reading because I am learning through these pages. Mm. Absolutely learning. Um, that leads really well into my next question for you. And as you kind of said within Holly's story with your boss as well. What a great, yeah, like I say what a great boss, what a great yeah. boss to be. I think is there another part in the book as well where um, a boss or said boss took you into the room and like kind of threw you into the deep end and was like, Oh, do you want to watch how I will tell someone how they're dying? Yeah, it was, absolutely. yeah. and in you fact, watched... that, might exactly. yeah. Yeah, that might be the very first story. Yeah, that might be the very first story. A French lady yes. who was called Sabine, who in was the book. yeah, very yeah, and oh. and she was so on edge. You tell it, yeah, you tell it. Oh, I just I love it. I'm yes. going to read the book again. <laughs>
0: this this lady, this lady had come to live in England after the Second World War. She'd been a member of the French Resistance. Mm. Just imagine what yeah. a courageous woman she yeah. must have been. And she'd married a British airman who. Parachuted into France to help her resistance cell build radios. Mm-hmm. And he was the love of her life. Mm-hmm. They'd never had children, which had been a great sadness to her. And he died about ten years before, after a heart attack. And they were quite devout people. She was a she was a French Roman Catholic, which is yeah. really, really Catholic. Yeah, yeah. And she was terrified of dying in pain. She told one of the nurses she was really frightened of dying in pain. And the nurse didn't say, oh, you don't need to worry about that. We've got really good drugs these days. (laughs) The nurse did something much, Mm -hmm. much more important than that. She said, tell me what you're frightened of Mm -hmm. and why it's so frightening. So I want to give that nurse a medal. Yeah. Because what Sabine told her was that if she should have overwhelming pain as she was dying, she might despair and you could imagine you could be frightened of that, yeah. couldn't you? Mm-hmm. But if she were to despair at the point of death, that would be a mortal sin because mm. she wouldn't have trusted in God enough. Right. And if you die in a state of mortal sin in her version of French Catholicism, you can't go to heaven. Right. And she was absolutely sure that her husband was in heaven.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so they would be separated for eternity. Mm. So this is a huge, a big huge deal. fear. And it's only a little bit about pain. Mm-hmm. It's really mainly about the meaning of the pain of course. And what else might happen. Yeah. So the nurse comes down to the office to tell the doctors and um, my boss said, Oh well, we need to go and deal with this. Why don't you come? And I was still quite new. And I was quite good at doing pain. I wasn't good at very much in palliative care yet, but I was Mm. quite good at doing pain. And I was young enough to know that I was good at doing pain as well. So, you know, I didn't really know why he wanted me to come. But of course, he wasn't going to talk to her about pain at all. Mm -hmm. He said to her as he sat down, I've heard that you're worried that you might be overwhelmed by pain as you die. And I'm thinking, how can you possibly say that sentence to yeah, you're, somebody?
1: Uh, you said you're, you're in the corner and you were looking at him like and her home yeah. to her. Yeah.
0: So I was <laughs> sitting on one of those little stools and the nurse is on the big chair next to the, the pillow end of the bed. Yeah. He's sitting on the bed. And he and she were great friends. He actually was fluently bilingual in French mm. and quite often they would chat to each other in French yeah. instead. So he knew her well enough mm. to go in at the deep end like yeah. that. And he asked her whether she'd ever seen anybody die and she'd seen two people die she'd seen somebody die of gunshot wounds during the war so that's not ordinary dying yeah
1: yeah and then she'd by. seen
0: her husband slowly slip into unconsciousness after he'd said all the prayers with the priest which is why she knew he was in heaven mm-hmm. after he'd had a, mm-hmm. a really huge heart attack mm-hmm. about 10 years before so he said well you know do you think it would be helpful if I explained to you what normally happens as people die and now I'm sitting on my little stool yeah, thinking <laughs> what how could anybody even say that and I just want to disappear now can yeah. I get under the bed how can I hide and he went on to do that conversation that you and I were just talking a little bit about Holly about that you know it doesn't really matter what the illness is towards the very end of somebody's life you're saying to her that the process is very similar mm-hmm. from person to person and to start off with, it's mainly just about running out of energy. It's mm-hmm. about being more tired and needing more sleep. And you might have noticed that already. Mm-hmm. And she said, Oh yeah, I have. Or she said it in French.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he said, Oh, that's good. And I'm thinking, No, 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 you cannot say that's yeah, good. You cannot say it. that's good. And yeah. I am just so absolutely out of my depth here. And he and he says, Oh, that's good because that shows us you're already following the normal pattern. So now I can tell you about the rest of the normal pattern. Yeah. He was good. He oh, wow. was good. Yeah. So he says, as time goes by, people's energy gets less. They sleep more, and when they're awake, they are their usual selves as long mm-hmm. as the illness isn't interfering with their mind or their brain. Um, so people are asleep more, they're awake less, and gradually, as time goes by, a really interesting change happens, which is some of the time while they're asleep, they're not just asleep; they dip into being completely unconscious. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they don't even know that's happening. Mm -hmm. They wake up, they say they've had a lovely sleep, but we know that during that sleep we tried to give them their medicine or get them a phone call or something like that, and we could not wake them up. They weren't just asleep. They were unconscious, Mm -hmm. and they've got no idea. So he says, so what's really lovely is towards the very end of people's lives, they're not just asleep. They're actually unconscious all Mm. of the time, and we know that they're not aware that that's happening to them. And eventually the only bit of your brain that's still working is the bit that works your breathing. And it just goes into automatic cycles, deep breathing that gradually becomes more shallow, fast breathing that gradually becomes more slow. Mm -hmm. And then the the cycle starts again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if your nieces and nephews are visiting and they come and they say, oh, she's breathing really fast. Do you you think she's breathless?
1: Mm.
0: Well, we'll come and check, but almost certainly it will be this automatic breathing of unconsciousness Mm. and if they say oh you know her breathing sounds funny and as though she's got something in the back of her throat well that'll probably be because once people are unconscious they don't clear their throats anymore they're so relaxed they're so peaceful they just don't feel the need Mm. but we'll check that you're okay Mm. and then towards the very end of somebody's life what happens is we start to see their breathing slowing down Mm. and by this stage I'm in tears and she is sitting further and further upright. She's got her eyes locked on his eyes. She's stroking his hand and Mm. nodding almost as though she's hypnotized and smiling. Mm. And he is describing dying to her. And he's probably describing what she saw happen to her husband, Husband, to her. So it's all making sense to her. And it's showing her that that scenario of being overwhelmed by pain that's not on the cards yeah. for her.
1: That leads very well into speaking about this; these last approaching two years, and of how even you saying then of how our approach to death and dying, what in in the main isn't well even back then it probably wasn't even more in the last two years and so obviously but i know you've been out of you has it been about 10 years now since you left left medically and was- i
0: i came out of medicine um during 2016 so it's five okay, five yeah. years now okay but so- i went but i went back to work during covid you did but right. i worked in a different way so my right. uh my local hospitals i rang them up and said you know the General Medical Council is letting all recently retired doctors go back on the medical register. Yeah. Um, and I could fill in a questionnaire that would let me be somebody who does telephone triage right. for the community. Yeah. But it seems a bit crazy to have all of this expertise about end-of-life care and mm-hmm. go and do telephone triage. Yeah. Were Can, you, you itching, yeah itching, Can you use me? Yeah. Can you use me? And they said, just get here now. <laughs> yeah. Any so, hand, yeah. So what I did was staff support... And training for the people who were doing the bedside care for dying yeah. people. Because every ward was taken over yeah. in one of our hospitals, became the COVID hospital.
1: Yeah.
0: And nurses who usually looked after, you know, fit young lads who'd broken bones <sighs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: were looking after people who were dying of a respiratory disease. Yeah. Um, nurses who usually looked after the dermatology ward which occasionally has people who are really systemically yeah. seriously ill but usually is relatively fit people with difficult skin yeah. complaints that need really careful care so these were not end-of-life care yeah. experienced yeah. staff but everybody was all hands to the pumps yeah. so it was really heartrending
1: yeah
0: and really amazing go back into the nhs Mm -hmm. and just listen to what was happening to the staff and to be part of the mechanism to help them to be better prepared yeah so i think a couple of things that really i've been reflecting on since then in the first thing is that in the very early days as covid was building and I got my GMC number back, but mm. still had to go through all of the safeguarding police right. checks and all, yeah. all the rest of it. And, and rightly so, yeah. but of course all that stuff takes time. But
1: you need to get in. Yeah, there's no yeah. time. So yeah.
0: so I got in touch with the um, the people at NHS England, the end of life care leads NHS England, and said, you yeah, know, I'm sitting at home and it is doing my head in. Yeah. Give me a job. Mm-hmm. What can I do? And they said, great. We've just got this thing that needs doing. Um, could you work with these three other people who could use your help to devise a framework to help these staff who are not used to having these conversations
1: Mm -hmm.
0: to have the conversations and of course not only are they not used to having these conversations they're also not used to having conversations with families over the phone yeah yeah we normally say this is a really serious conversation we want you to come in in. face yeah Yeah. And now we can't do that. Mm -hmm. So I had this wonderful experience of working with these fantastic people another palliative care person, palliative care nurse specialist, um, uh, an occupational therapist who was actually working as a, as, as a, a service manager by then, mm. but had this clinical background. And then somebody who was normally at an operating theatres, an ITU technical support person, mm. but who was very good at making and editing videos okay. at Manchester University yeah. Hospital. Yeah. And between us, we got help from researchers at Loughborough University who they research analysis of conversations. Right. And they use videotapes of conversations at the hospice in Leicester. Mm. They get the patients and the families to rate how they felt during the conversation. Right. And they get the doctors, nurses, physios, whoever, to talk about why they said the things they said. Mm -hmm. And then they look at these conversations and work out what are the things that make people feel listened to, safely held, given information at a rate that they could take it in those sorts of things so they helped us by giving us that research and we turned that into a framework yeah and the framework was not something surprising it turns out in the Mm. end so when you need to help somebody to understand something that's really bad really difficult or even really good but hugely emotional you help them to get there By letting them start the conversation, Mm -hmm. by saying, tell us what's happened to your dad so far. Yeah. And as they tell you their story and you ask questions to just check that you're understanding it right Mm – they hear the story too. Yeah. So they hear themselves tell you dad got really hot and he couldn't smell his food. Then he got this terrible cough. Then he really couldn't breathe. Then the ambulance guys took him away and he came into hospital. And then yesterday they said they were going to put a machine over his face
1: mm-hmm. to try
0: and help him with his breathing. And as they're telling that story, they're thinking, things are not good for dad, yeah. are they? Yeah. Okay. So now I can come in and give them the next piece. Yeah. Which might be, so it sounds like you've been really worried about your dad. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, today I'm really glad to say things are a little bit better and that machine has really helped with this breathing. Mm. But quite often it wasn't that. It was you're really worried about your dad. Yeah. And we're really worried too. And mm-hmm. he's still using that machine with his breathing, but it isn't helping as much as we'd hoped. Yeah. And we're really starting to worry now that... He's not going to be able to fight this illness off. And mm-hmm. we think that maybe he is beginning to die. Yeah. And that technically changed the rules for a lot of places. Now he's allowed to have one or two visitors. Yeah. So although this is the saddest phone call to tell yeah. you this news, at least we can let you now come in. Some places they couldn't even let people come yeah. in. Um, we're going to take the iPad and make an audio call now so your dad can see and hear you yeah and you can see and hear him and so they so we were helping to frame this conversation of the person tells their story to the point where you pick it up and help them to know the next bit yeah and then the next thing that's really important is when you've told somebody really seriously bad news the next thing that you do is you just shut up yeah and it was really hard to get doctors to stop talking, yeah, you know, particularly doctors. They wanted to make it better. They wanted to tell you all the treatments they tried. Yeah. No, We've no, done this, you know, you've done just that. told me my, my dad is dying and I just need to take that in. Yeah. And so how do you accompany people? Mm. How do you, you know, if you were in a room with them, they could see you're sitting there, you're paying attention. You might be giving them a tissue because they're mm. crying, but you're on the phone, you can't see each other. So you need to be able to say i'm here it's okay take your time yeah just little not complicated sentences so they don't really have to listen to you mm-hmm. they don't have to pay attention to you they can carry on synthesizing those thoughts mm. but you're saying things that make it okay for them to just be there in their silence yeah. doing that yeah. work and then how do you end that conversation in a safe way mm by bringing the person back to the present say so that was really difficult to hear and I'm so so sorry and I want to make sure that anything you want to ask you've had a chance to ask me Uh, what questions do you have and what are you going to do now who are you going to tell next if you're going to come to the hospital how are you going to get here Mm -hmm. so you're bringing them now back to what are the next steps they need practicality at this point yeah 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 Mm -hmm. So we devised this framework and it turned out that when I went back to the hospital, the thing that staff were most worried about was, am I dealing with these phone calls okay? Mm -hmm. Am I communicating with these families okay? So we then set up training using that framework in the hospital for them to have practice goes. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that really was heartbreaking for staff was that they knew Mm -hmm. that they were at the bedside. And they were not the right person. Yeah. That they were caring for somebody who wanted to see somebody else, a person that they loved, mm. and that somehow they were there as representatives of that person. Yeah. And very often they had them on the phone. And because, you know, piped oxygen is noisy, mm-hmm. you're having to say yeah. what the person is saying you, to them. Yeah, you're having to intervene
1: sick. in that moment. Yeah.
0: So really poignant really different yeah but actually if we went back a hundred years that's how people died yeah people died they were well and then they got an infection or they had an accident an infection got in through the break in the skin mm. or whatever and there were no antibiotics and they became severely ill and then there would be this kind of crisis mm. Very, very hot, semi-conscious, deeply unconscious. It's in all the great novels, isn't it? Yeah. Tolstoy does it. Jane yeah. Austen does it. If you've seen Sense and Sensibility, you've seen Marianne yeah. reaching her crisis. Yeah. Um, and then either the body's reserves saved your life yeah, or you died. Mm. And what we saw in COVID was people dying the way they used to die yeah. before we had antibiotics. Biotics. Yeah. Like
1: going and back it quite was literally humbling. 100 years. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we, and we don't have that experience as staff. Only people in wartime have seen deaths in those numbers before. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: So what are we taking forwards into 2022? Well, we're taking a really exhausted workforce. They yeah. are really tired.
1: Yeah.
0: But we're also taking a workforce that's seen a lot of dying, that perhaps understands dying now better than they ever did before. Yeah. And maybe they can be better companions for dying people mm. alongside the visitors who can be allowed in,
1: yeah.
0: either because it's not COVID the person's dying from, or maybe the particular variant of the virus isn't so serious for most of us. Mm. So over time, maybe we're going to have a workforce that's a bit more competent for those conversations mm. and for being alongside people who are dying. Mm. and of recognising when dying isn't proceeding the way it should. So you want to get the symptoms sorted out so the person can get back onto that peaceful trajectory. But I think we've also got a workforce that is knackered and some people are really traumatised by what they've been through. And that it's going to take a lot of kindness and care and time off and therapy to enable them to recover, to be able to come back into the workforce and
1: to utilize that, to utilize yeah. their experience. Yeah. That is very much, I am. Um, I like to think, and I, my next question for you is kind of, yeah. Do you, do you think we've gotten better? I say better We're on the way to getting better with talking about it off the back of the last two years, because there's, there's part of me, there's always the optimist and the pessimist in me mm you know I, I'm surrounded probably like both of us we are both so we're in our own echo chambers kind of we're, we're around people who do speak about death dying and bereavement yeah. and so kind of when we step out of that and we hear that some people struggle think oh that's not odd but you just think I haven't heard that in a while because we live in our own echo chamber yes but do you think over the last two years we know well, our workforce and just as a society with the amount of Death and dying, whether you've experienced it personally, be it to the virus or even just losing anybody throughout this last time. We've literally lived side by side with death for the last two years. How can we not be better at talking about it? And. Almost in a way, I think I I wrote at the end of 2020 because 2020 was the year Mm -hmm. and everybody was, thank God 2020's done. It's gone. Hurrah. And that was one side of kind of the the social stuff that I was seeing. And on the other half on grief gang community, it was, but I don't want 2020 to go because, you know, my loved one was still here or, or even if we're just completely binning 2020 like you're just binning my experience most importantly, my experience like we can't we cannot turn our back on 2020 and even now 2021 and now 2022 of forget forget about those years and all that horrible dying that happened how can we that's an injustice to the people who died and their loved ones and so I wanted to ask you yeah do you think we've gotten better talking about it
0: I think some of us have, and I think some of us haven't, Mm -hmm. and I think the people who haven't have possibly had different experiences, because they were too anxious to talk about it, they weren't able to do the preparing, yeah, and so they're now scarred by their bereavement Mm -hmm. experiences, or perhaps they were people who previously had talked about it, but this was so different Mm -hmm. this was too difficult for them or just too many deaths you know there are some families who have had multiple Multiple, deaths yeah. yeah so I think that it's like anything that there's an opportunity isn't there when something really difficult happens. There is always an opportunity for growth. Yeah. And seeing the growth and rejo- rejoicing in the growth
1: mm-hmm.
0: is important. But it's also really important what you're saying about us in our bubbles, yeah. in our echo chambers, yeah. that if we only talk about the growth, we don't recognize the pain yeah. and the grief yeah. and the horror and the trauma that mm-hmm. some people have been through and are still living with.
1: absolutely.
0: Maybe, though, what we're starting to do is become better listeners to each other.
1: As humans, we are fixers by nature. Even if you are kind of the most sociopath, we are kind of just all fixers by nature. And especially when it's somebody you love and you care about, if you see that they are, you know, yeah, cheer up. What can I do? What can I do to fill the space? And when in the last two years we couldn't even be with each other and when there were no words for the catastrophic and just so inhumane ways that people were dying the last two years, mm-hmm. all we, all we could do was just listen and it's really uncomfortable for some people just to listen to either somebody they, love, they love or looking after their pain because we just want to bring solution, but... Yeah. The power of listening, just knowing you've been heard, is sometimes the greatest solution. There doesn't need to be a filler. No, you know that feeling when you've just offloaded, and they just go, "Yeah," and you go, "Oh, yeah, yeah, I feel okay. I don't need you to say anything more."
0: Yeah, and isn't that the thing with grief yeah. that we nobody's going to be able to make it better? They cannot bring that person back. Mm-hmm. They cannot undo that wrong that has happened.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So how dare they even suggest that they can make it better? Yeah. But instead to just be be our companion in sorrow
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, you know, share the sad space with us.
1: Yeah. Hence why Not I started a whole podcast, eh, Catherine? <laughs> right to end this fantastic episode I'm so excited to share this Catherine (laughs) it's been wonderful oh it's lovely to talk to you oh it's been amazing I hope it's not the last and I'm sure I'm sure we will we'll find I'll I'll find ways to get back in your ear I want to as I said earlier trial something with you and for listeners this is something very new and I'll probably keep it going you know I'll always trial and error Um, But, Catherine, I would like you to leave a question for the next guest.
0: That's such an interesting thing to (laughs) do. Okay. I would love you to ask your next guest to tell us about a time where they really felt properly listened to.
1: Amazing. Amazing. I'm very looking forward to that answer from them. Dr. Catherine Mannix, thank you so, so much for coming on The Grief Gang today.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me. I loved it.
1: Well, that's it for this week's episode. I hope you all enjoyed it and it set your week off to a great start. Whether you've laughed a little, cried a little... I mean, I think crying is good for the soul. Or you've resonated with something that was said. Thank you for listening and spending time out of your day to do so. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and subscribe. In doing so, you're ensuring that lots more people get to find The Grief Gang podcast and hopefully help them too. If you're not already, check out The Grief Gang on social media platforms such as Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. I'm most active on the Instagram page where I love, love, love to connect with you all. For now, take care and big, big love. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.